0: All right, I hope you'll take your Bibles, and we're gonna be in Psalm 138. Psalm 138. We will eventually get to a new book of the Bible, but I'm enjoying this time of exploring some more of the Psalms with you. As you turn there, over the last few years, there's been a word that's been used a lot, it's become somewhat trendy. Maybe you've heard this word, maybe you've seen this trend this idea of deconstruction or deconstructing faith. It's it's a word that gets defined different ways, and so I won't claim to be the authority on how to define it, but the way it's used a lot, it's used a lot by people who have grown up in the church. They've grown up with a, a set of beliefs and traditions, and they get to a point where they start asking questions. They want to be sure that what they've been told and what they've been taught is true, What's real and what's man-made or what's added or what's extra? So they go through this process and it's been called deconstruction where we start tearing things down, examining everything with the hope of reconstructing. Hang on to the things that are true, let go of the things that are not or that are extra and get to the heart of what's really important. And I think we should acknowledge there are healthy forms of this, right? Right? that we could pick up things and add things to our faith that maybe should not have been added, and so there could be a healthy form of deconstruction. And yet, what I've found in this trend that kind of just observing and hearing and reading about is that what's happening often is not honest evaluation, but simply leaving the faith. It's apostasy with a less jarring term. It's socially acceptable, even cool, to say you're deconstructing. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. And the reason I'm even bringing this up is a place that I've kind of come into it recently for myself, and this isn't to put shade on any one whole group of people, but I've come into it recently and been encountered with in people whose music I've loved and, and listened to who have traditionally sang beautiful and true things about God and life with God. But then they've gone through this process. Their thoughts of God start to change, and of course, our music starts to change. And I'm, uh, this has a point, I, I think. I'm, I'm moving us there. I've had this weird experience a couple of times recently where there's been artists that I've loved. I just know them from a distance. I don't know these folks, but I've appreciated their music. But then a new album comes out and I find myself listening to the album with a little bit of anxiety. Right? Cuz I don't want to lose them. <laughs> right? But more, is this where I'm going to find that maybe they're drifting? I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Maybe someone you read or someone you follow or someone you listen to. But here's where I want to make the connection. I share this because this week I've been reminded of how thankful I am for the Psalms. This songbook that God has given us, songs that we can read and we can, we can sing. We sang Psalm 34 earlier. And we can know that these things have been given to us by God so that we can know him and we can know ourselves and we can know our world and we can confidently know that this is the very word of God. It's an album of songs that we can trust completely. I like the way John Calvin describes the Psalms. I've shared this with you before. It sticks with me. He says, The Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul. For there's not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as with a mirror. The Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs and sorrows and fears and doubts and hopes and cares and perplexities. In short, all the emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. He says he's brought them here together. We have all these songs and some are, are joyful and some are grievous. Some are laments. Some are psalms of victory. They touch every emotion. So we have... Psalms that are personal and expressive, some that are raw, all inspired by God. It's all the things I love about good music, right? The emotion of it, the the story of it, and yet we don't have to wonder if it's true or if it's an exaggeration. I'm saying, I had this experience this week where I got, uh, uh, we don't get albums anymore, we open up our app and we click on the new album. And I'm listening and this person's singing about God, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to discern, right? Is what they're saying true? Is it helpful? And then later on that day, I got to spend time in Psalm thirty-one thirty-eight, and I just noticed this distinction. This is true. This is good. It's given to us by God. And I say all that to say, I want to invite you back into the Psalms to these songs given to us by God and just tell you, you can believe it. It's true. It's real life inspired by God for our benefit. Psalm 138 is a song of praise, of hope, of answered prayers, of confidence in the future and it should help us think big thoughts of God even in the midst of the hardship of life. It's a good song. So I want to invite you to hear it, and we're going to walk line by line. You ever get the the liner notes? Remember when we had liner notes? You lay on your bed and listen to the music and read the liner notes? We're going to read the lyrics of the song and consider what God is telling us through this inspired song. So Psalm 138, let me read it for you. Hear the word of God. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may have noticed at the top of the psalm, it's a psalm credited to David. David wrote a large percentage of the Psalms, and we haven't had one for a while, if you're reading straight through the, the book. Starting here, we have one of eight of David's Psalms, and then after that eight, we don't have any more from him and the rest of the, the Psalter. It's a song of David, and it's worth noting for this reason. David lived a life. You know what I mean by that? It's a guy who saw a lot of things. Lots of experiences. He had some really, really good days. And he had some really, really bad days. And many of them have been given to us in the story of Scripture. I think that's a good thing to keep in mind as we come to the psalm. That this song is coming from the heart of a man who had struggles and who had sin and who had doubt. Sometimes I think we can read the psalms, we hear these big statements about God. And we think, yeah, easy for you to say right no this is the guy who had lived he had days where he probably wondered if god would hear his prayers again because of the things that he had done but god is faithful and david had experienced that faithfulness which is why he wrote psalms like this just to kind of get us into it the psalm is divided into three parts the first part we have a song Of thanks to God for his faithfulness. In the second part, we have David singing a song of hope that there's a day coming when not only he, but all will praise God. And then the psalm ends, if it's three verses, the third verse is an expression of confidence in God's ongoing care. So, three verses. We'll have to get Chris Tomlin to write us a chorus. A prayer of thanks prayer of hope and a prayer of confidence. So let's just start at the beginning. The psalm begins with David having this wholehearted expression of gratitude. Verse 1, I thank you, I give thanks to you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your temple and give thanks to your holy name. As we get into the psalm more, we're going to hear the why. We're going to talk about why he's praising God. But before we get to the why, let's just consider the, the manner of his praise. And he describes it here. He says it's wholehearted, not half hearted praise, not timid or insincere gratitude. No, his, his thanks is flowing out of a heart that is full of gratitude and praise. And I think we know the difference, don't we, between thanks. And this wholehearted gratitude, this kind of gratitude that David is describing here. And then we get some more details about what it looks like or what it feels like for David. He says, I give thanks to you before the gods. I sing your praise. And this is one of those lines that gets translators and commentators chatting, right? Because what's going on here? Who are these gods that... David is singing in front of. And it's not because we don't understand the word. The word is clear, but the question is, what does he mean? So some have said, well, maybe he's talking about angels, like here's God and here's the host of the angels, and David is singing before them all. Or, and I think this is a legitimate interpretation, later he talks about kings. So perhaps he's talking about earthly quote-unquote gods, and that I will sing the praises of God before the, the mighty, the rulers of our land. That, that's a legitimate interpretation, I think. Where I, I fall on this is that he's talking about the idols, the false gods of the world. And in this, he's not saying that they are true gods or that they truly exist. But it's this idea that we have all these things we worship. And that we're tempted to put above God. And yet he says, I see them all. I see all the options of the things that I can worship. And I want to put them all on notice that I honor the true God above all. With all the other so called gods in view, he sings praise. And it's, it's similar to me, similar to Psalm 96. Says, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Then he says, This for all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. So you see this thing. There's, there's these things we worship, and we do this too, friends. You may not have a wooden statue in the corner of your living room that you bow to, but we all have things that we set up as the things that we love and we give our devotion to. And here's David saying, I'm going to sing your praise above everything else. There's, sing your praise in front of the other gods. He's giving all of his praise to God, and while that seems public and big, There's also humility here. Look at verse 2. He says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your holy name. You see that contrast here? My praise is going to be in front of all the gods. And yet it's not prideful. It's not arrogant. It's not boastful. It's humble. I will bow before your temple. Now, the temple wasn't built when David was alive, but the tabernacle, the the place of God. It represents the presence of God, the glory of God. He says, I'll bow down. He's expressing his gratitude and offering his worship. But we come to the question of why. Why is David thanking and praising God? And we get the reasons here. We actually get three reasons, but I think they all have a common denominator. We'll look at each of them individually, but what I want to suggest is that all of this is David praising and thanking God for his faithfulness. And he expresses in three different ways how God is faithful. The first one's pretty explicit. He says there in verse two I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and faithfulness. That one's kind of on the nose. Two words in the original language, steadfast love and faithfulness. But we see them, if you read through the, especially the Old Testament, you see these words put together a lot. A lot of times God is described as having steadfast love and faithfulness, and they're put together because they, they actually represent one idea. Steadfast love, it's a, a word that in the Hebrew you would pronounce it hesed, and steadfast love is a good way to try to get the, get at it, But it's a covenant word. So it's this idea that God has made a promise of love that cannot be broken. And then faithfulness kind of comes and just helps to emphasize that. We have a God who loves us, and his love is bound by covenant, it endures forever. So David's praising and thanking God for being a God who has a a never-changing, never-failing, never-fading love. He's faithful. He's steadfast. He's constant. Probably all adjectives that you're comfortable with. Nothing surprising there for us to say, for me to say, God's faithful. He's constant. He's sure. And yet we shouldn't let familiarity allow us to miss the weight of what that means. We have a God whose love never wavers. Who's the same? Yesterday? Today, forever. How's your love? Fickle? Erratic, inconsistent. I'm not pointing finger. I'm just saying, this is our nature, isn't it? And yet God is not like us. Praise God. He is not like us. He does not love the way we love. His love is constant, it's steadfast, it's faithful. David's praising God that God can be counted on. And then he says this, let's keep reading in verse two. I give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness, for you have exalted above all things your name and your word. This may be my favorite part of the psalm. We have this statement about the value and reliability of God's character and his promises. He says, You've exalted above all things your name and your word. So you have held up these two things your name, which the name of God represents his character, who he is in total. You've exalted your character and you have exalted your word. And you may have some footnotes. It's a, it's a difficult to translate line. And you know, then I think the meaning is clear. What does God value? He values his character. And because his words come out of his character, his, his word is sure. He says, you've exalted above all things your name and your word. And I think he's talking about faithfulness. Your word, it never changes. It's held high. It's untouchable. It's sure. He values his name and his promises. They can be trusted. They can be counted on. It's why after I, we read our primary text every Sunday, I quote Isaiah 40, verse 8. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever forever which is to say it's sure, it it, it doesn't change, it's trustworthy. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And this is what David is praising God for, that his character and his word are sure. He has exalted above all things his name and his word. It's another way of saying you're faithful and everything you say can be trusted. Things that are perhaps easy to believe theologically. The question is, do we believe it practically that he can be trusted? And what we see in the psalm is David gives an example of how he knows these things are true. talk about music, if someone in a song says, here's how I know this is true, and they give their experience, okay, that's worth something. But when it's inspired by God, this is a whole new weight. David says in verse 3, on the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul, you increased. So he gets personal, because we can say that God is steadfast and faithful, and we can believe that he has exalted above all things, his name and his word. But here we see this personal application. David says, I prayed and you answered my prayer. I called out to you and you answered. It's about the faithfulness of God. And we see the answer. The answer is that he increased the strength of his soul. We don't know the context. We don't know the situation. We, we don't really know what David was praying for. Maybe, perhaps, David asked, God, will you strengthen my soul? And God answered him by strengthening his soul. Or consider this. Perhaps, David asked for something else. Maybe he asked to be saved from a hard situation. And this was God's response. I'll strengthen your soul so you can endure it. Isn't this the way God answers prayer sometimes? Not by changing the situation, but by giving us the strength of soul that we need. This is what happens to Paul. Remember Paul? He says, three times I asked that God would take this thorn from me. Remember what God's response was when David said, take this thing away from me? God said this to to Paul. Did I call him David? It's Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God answered. David experienced the faithfulness of God. God strengthened his soul. And his response to that answered prayer is thanks and praise. God is faithful steadfast love and faithfulness. He is exalted above all things, his name and his word. And David says, I called out to the faithful God, and you know what happened? He answered me, and he strengthened my soul. Friends, we have a God who is faithful, who hears us when we pray. You can trust him with the situations of your life. Maybe you struggle feeling distant from God, maybe even doubting his care. This part of the psalm is a good reminder that you can call on him, you can trust him. He is faithful and he is worthy of your praise. It's a good song. In verse 1, we have this prayer of praise for the faithfulness of God. And then the music changes, we get verse 2. I'm just going to stick with this music theme, all right? Verse 2. It's a prayer of hope. Verse 4. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord. For they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. So in the first verse, David's offering his praise, and it's an individual praise. He's thanking and praising God, but then... We see this next verse. He's, I believe, looking forward and saying, All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks. I think he's looking to that final day, that day when everyone will see God for who he is. And from the least to the greatest on earth, all will see, all will recognize who he is. Right now, not everyone sees God rightly. I don't think I have to convince you of that. Not everyone recognizes God as God. Certainly not everyone worships God as God. But the scriptures tell us there is a day coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. David says, all the kings of the earth shall give thanks to you, O Lord. There's never been a time in history when all the leaders of the world saw God and acknowledged his greatness. But the Bible describes a day when kings and nations will see. It's described in some of the similar language is used in Revelation 21. The last book of the Bible, this vision of John as he sees what's in store. He says this, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamp is the Lamb. But its light will the nations walk, by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I won't try to unpack all that this morning, but there will be a day when all kings will bow before the king of kings. And what we have here is David expressing this hope that not only is God good to him, and not only should he be worshipped by some, but God is God, he is the king of kings, and one day it will be clear to all. All will see and recognize the surety of his word, that he does what he says. Verse 4, O Lord, they have heard the words of your mouth. So in the first section we see, you have exalted your name and your word above all things. Now he says, all kings will praise you because they will recognize the surety of your word. And they'll see his glory. Verse 5, they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. David knows the greatness of God. He's recognized his glory, and he knows that one day it will be undeniable to all. All will recognize him for who he is. It reminds me of Habakkuk. If you want homework, you can go read Habakkuk this afternoon. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, he says, looking again, looking forward, he says. All the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's the idea that one day everyone will see and there will be no denying who is God. That day is coming. I think David's looking forward to that. There will be a day when even the kings will bow. Even those who are mighty by worldly standards will praise God. Side note, he's not implying that they will all have faith there will be a day when all will see God for who he is. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's keep that high view of God, the one whom all will see, who all will praise. And then read verse 6. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. I struggled here. I, I'm an outline guy. You know, I think this is part of verse two. What's the connection here? Had a hard time, but, but consider the supremacy of God. And yet, here we have this reminder that though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. This is the gospel, isn't it? Even in all his glory and greatness, God shows care and compassion for those who come to him in humility. Repentance. This is the gospel that God made a way for sinners like you and me to be reconciled to him, brought into fellowship. For though the Lord is high, he regards, has care for, takes notice of the lowly. Here's the reality. On that day when God is seen as God, none of us deserve in ourselves, on our own, to be in fellowship with him. But this is our hope. He regards the lowly. And here's what he did for us. He sent his son to come and to die. We've read about that this morning. We've sung about that this morning, that Jesus came He laid down his life. He bore the wrath of God on behalf of sinful men so that all who come to him, repenting of their sin and trusting in the work that he has done on our behalf, the Bible says, will be saved, reconciled, brought into fellowship with God. Because know this, church, the Lord Almighty, before whom we will all stand and give an account, he regards the lowly. Which is to say, he accepts all those who come to him in repentance and faith. This is the gospel. This is our hope. God, very God, King of kings, Lord of lords, has regard for the lowly, for you and for me if we come to him. But the haughty, he knows from afar. James says it this way, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Those who don't humble themselves, those who don't repent of their sins, those who don't admit their need, he knows them from afar. We can go to other places in Scripture to recognize what that means. Separation and judgment. Judgment. We need to hear this today. That the glory and greatness of God is good news. But it's only good news for those who come to him rightly. It's only good news for those who come in repentance and faith. This is the way we can be counted among the lowly and spared the fate of the proud. As I try to see structure. I recognize that in the first verse, he starts with praise of God, and he ends with the acknowledgement that God has answered his prayer. And in the second verse, he looks forward to the day when all will praise God, and he ends with this acknowledgement that God comes near to those who come to him in humility. Let me come to the third section. Let me just read verses seven and eight again. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. In the first verse, he's remembering the faithfulness of God in the past. In this final section, we see David expressing this confidence that God will continue to be with him. He will save him from trouble. He will finish the work that he has started in him. It's a song that ends with confidence. Now, again, don't forget that David is a real man with real fears and real troubles who found himself often in real danger. And yet what we see in this final part of the psalm is his confidence in God. He says, verse 7, though I walk in the midst of trouble. Maybe that's how you would describe the season of life for yourself. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. We don't know necessarily what trouble he's speaking of. But we do know there were times when David was literally running from his life, hiding in caves from his enemies. But this is his confidence. God will be my help. We keep reading, he says, You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. I love that imagery. The imagery, it's metaphorical, but it's helpful. The hand of God coming to rescue David. But as I looked at it, I think there's two hands here. Did you see this? And we could, I mean, maybe. He says, you stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand delivers me. In my mind, I see two hands. The hand that's shutting down the enemies and the hand that's pulling in his servant. The point being, whether that's in fact true or not, that picture, God helps in time of trouble and David is confident that he will be saved, that he will be spared, that he will be helped There will be trouble. There will be those who oppose us, but we can trust in the care of our God. It it reminds me, it brings to mind for me the, the 23rd Psalm. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. If you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The rod being the stick he uses to beat off the enemies. The staff being that crooked one that he uses to pull in the wandering sheep. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The 23rd Psalm and this last part of Psalm 138 are psalms of confidence. I know you will save me. I know you'll be with me. I know you will complete in me that which you have started. See that in verse 8? Maybe my favorite part of the psalm. Have I said that already? Let's go with this one now. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. It's a reminder that God is sovereign. That he has a plan for his people. That he is working out his plan. He will accomplish his plan. And his plan for you is salvation. He's working it out. He's doing it in you if you are his. It's Romans chapter 8 stuff. For those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. If he's saved you, he's sanctifying you, and he will glorify you. He will fulfill his purpose in you. It's Philippians chapter 1 stuff. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 stuff. One of my favorite benedictions. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. Why? He says at the end of verse 8, your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. It's that word we've already seen, that covenant faithful love. How can we know that God will finish what he started in us? Because he has made promises and he always keeps his promises. He's God of covenant faithfulness, of steadfast love. Your love, O Lord, endures forever. So I know that you will finish in me what you have started. We can be sure he will keep his promises to complete the work. And I know because I've been there and I feel it, some days you think, I am not making any progress in my walk with Christ. But we keep trusting and we keep obeying. We know that he is faithful. It means even when life is hard, you can trust that God is true. Even when life takes unexpected turns, you can trust that he is faithful. means that if you're in Christ, you will never be abandoned. You can trust, like Paul, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That good being your salvation. His purpose is your salvation, your sanctification, your glorification, and he will use every part of your life to accomplish that plan. Every part of it. All things together for good. David says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. It's a great assurance. He's confident. And yet, did you notice this? He prays for it. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What's going on here? God, I know you're faithful. Be faithful to me. I know you will do what you have said. (laughs) Will you do it in my life? I know you will accomplish your purpose. Lord, accomplish your purpose in me. Do not forsake the work of your hands. This is something we have examples of all over the Bible where the people of God know what's true of God and ask it to be true. Let me give you an example while ago, we were in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Will his kingdom come? Yeah. Will his will be done? 100%. Jesus says, pray like this. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. God is honored when we show our trust in him by asking him to do the things that he said that he will do. And that's what we see here with David. I know you will accomplish your purpose in me. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Do what you have said that you will do. Make it so. It's a good prayer. It's a biblical prayer. It's the kind of prayer we should pray. Lord, finish your work in me, which is not a prayer of doubt that he will, but a prayer of confidence that he can. And that finishes the psalm. Now what? What do we do with what we have heard? There's quite a bit here. Let me just try to give you one thing from each section, and then we'll be done. Kind of a recap. First, we have a God who's worthy of our praise because of his faithfulness. So we should praise him with our words and with our lives. I've thought a lot this last couple of days about David praising God before the gods, which I think is instructive for us. Because we all have things that we are tempted to worship above God. So that there are things in our life that receive lots of praise and things in our lives that receive lots of worship. And yet we give perhaps some weeks little thought to God. So my encouragement to you, church, would be this week, To sing the praise of God before the gods. To show with the way you live that he is worthy. He's the one who's faithful, who answers prayers, who has set his steadfast love on you. Live like it's true. Second, we should find hope in remembering that one day everyone will see God for who he is and he will reign Overall, it's easy to get distracted by all the things in the world. We see the increasing evil when we think we're doomed. Friend, God is still on the throne and He is coming and He has promised that He will make all things right. And that's not just a global promise, it's a personal promise to those who are in Christ. There's a day coming when all will stand before him. And that should give us hope. Well, let me say this. It's hope for those who have trusted him. The Lord is high. He regards the lowly. So here's, I guess, a a sub-point to the second point. The hope is for those who have trusted him. So if you're here and you've not placed your faith in Christ... That you must repent. You must trust Him. And as, as we've done that, when we come into Christ, now we have this hope of being with God when He makes all things right. Lastly, we can trust that God is with us and that He will finish the work that He has started in us. I know, friends, some of you are tired, some of you are weary, but I want to encourage you to believe the scriptures. God is near. He will save you from trouble. He will accomplish his purpose in you. You can trust his plan. There will be days when you wonder if God knows what he's doing. On those days, return to the song. Return to the psalm. He is faithful. The Lord will fulfill his purpose in you. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. This psalm is a song that we can trust. It's a song that we should have on repeat in our hearts and minds. A song that we should find ourselves meditating on throughout the day. It's a song of praise. It's a song of hope. It's a song of confidence. Praise God, the one who's given us this song. Let's pray.